Section 44 of Volume 1F of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Dennison. HISTORY OF ENGLAND FROM THE INVASION OF JULIUS CAESAR TO THE REVOLUTION OF 1688 BY DAVID HUME VOLUME 1 F SECTION 44 CHAPTER 71 PART 3 So violent were the prejudices which at this time prevailed, that this unhappy father, who had been deserted by his favorite child, was believed, upon her disappearing, to have put her to death and it was fortunate that the truth was timely discovered, otherwise the populace, even the king's guards themselves, might have been engaged in revenge to commence a massacre of the priests and Catholics. The king's fortune now exposed him to the contempt of his enemies, and his behavior was not such as could gain him the esteem of his friends and adherents. Unable to resist the torrent, he preserved not presence of mind in yielding to it, but seemed in this emergence as much depressed with adversity as he had before been vainly elated by prosperity. He called a council of all the peers and prelates who were in London, and followed their advice in issuing writs for a new Parliament, and in sending Halifax, Nottingham, and Godolphin as commissioners to treat with the Prince of Orange. But these were the last acts of royal authority which he exerted. He even hearkened to imprudent counsel, by which he was prompted to desert the throne, and to gratify his enemies beyond what their fondest hopes could have promised them. The queen, observing the fury of the people, and knowing how much she was the object of general hatred, was struck with the deepest terror, and began to apprehend a parliamentary impeachment from which, she was told, the queens of England were not exempted. The popish courtiers, and above all the priests, were aware that they should be the first sacrifice, and that their perpetual banishment was the smallest penalty which they must expect from national resentment. They were, therefore, desirous of carrying the king along with them, whose presence, they knew, would still be some resource and protection to them in foreign countries, and whose restoration, if it ever happened, would again reinstate them in power and authority. The general defection of the Protestants made the king regard the Catholics as his only subjects on whose counsel he could rely, and the fatal catastrophe of his father afforded them a plausible reason for making him apprehend a like fate. The great difference of circumstances was not, during men's present distractions, sufficiently weighed. Even after the people were inflamed by a long civil war, the execution of Charles I could not be deemed a national deed. It was perpetuated by a fanatical army, pushed on by a daring and enthusiastic leader. And the whole kingdom had ever entertained, and did still entertain, a violent abhorrence against that enormity. The situation of public affairs, therefore, no more resembled what it was forty years before than the Prince of Orange, either in birth, character, fortune, or connections, could be supposed a parallel to Cromwell. 
the emissaries of france and among the rest of barillon the french ambassador were busy about the king and they had entertained a very false notion which they instilled into him that nothing would more certainly retard the public settlement and beget universal confusion than his deserting the kingdom the prince of orange had with good reason embraced a contrary opinion and he deemed it extremely difficult to find expedients for securing the nation so long as the king kept possession of the crown actuated therefore by this public motive and no less we may well presume by private ambition he was determined to use every expedient which might intimidate the king and make him quit that throne which he himself was alone enabled to fill he declined a personal conference with james's commissioners and sent the earls of clarendon and oxford to treat with them the terms which he proposed implied almost a present participation of the sovereignty and he stopped not a moment the march of his armies towards london the news which the king received from all quarters served to continue the panic into which he was fallen and which his enemies expected to improve to their advantage colonel Koppel, deputy governor of hull made himself master of that important fortress and threw into prison lord langdale the governor a catholic together with lord montgomery a nobleman of the same religion the town of newcastle received lord lumley and declared for the prince of orange and a free parliament the duke of norfolk lord lieutenant of the county of that name engaged it in the same measure the prince's declaration was read at oxford by the duke of ormond and was received with great applause by that loyal university who also made an offer of their plate to the prince every day some person of quality or distinction and among the rest the duke of somerset went over to the enemy a violent declaration was dispersed in the prince's name but without his participation in which every one was commanded to seize and punish all papists who contrary to law pretended either to carry arms or exercise any act of authority it may not be unworthy of notice that a merry ballad called lily bullero being at this time published in derision of the papist and the irish it was greedily received by the people and was sung by all ranks of men even by the king's army who were strongly seized with the national spirit this incident both discovered and served to increase the general discontent of the kingdom the contagion of mutiny and disobedience had also reached scotland whence the regular forces contrary to the advice of balcaras the treasurer were withdrawn in order to reinforce the english army the marquis of athole together with viscount tarbat and others finding the opportunity favorable began to form intrigues against perth the chancellor and the presbyterians and other malcontents flocked from all quarters to edinburgh the chancellor apprehensive of the consequences found it expedient to abscond and the populace as if that event were a signal for their insurrection immediately rose in arms and rifled the popish chapel in the king's palace all the catholics even all the zealous royalists were obliged to conceal themselves and the privy council instead of their former submissive strains of address to the king and violent edicts against their fellow-subjects 
now made applications to the prince of orange as the restorer of law and liberty the king every moment alarmed more and more by these proofs of a general disaffection not daring to repose trust in any but those who were exposed to more danger than himself agitated by disdain towards ingratitude by indignation against disloyalty impelled by his own fears and those of others precipitately embraced the resolution of escaping into france and he sent off beforehand the queen and the infant prince under the conduct of count lauzun an old favorite of the french monarch he himself disappeared in the night-time attended only by sir edward hales and made the best of his way to a ship which waited for him near the mouth of the river as if this measure had not been the most grateful to his enemies of any that he could adopt he had carefully concealed his intention from all the world and nothing could equal the surprise which seized the city the court and the kingdom upon the discovery of this strange event men beheld all of a sudden the reins of government thrown up by the hand which held them and saw none who had any right or even pretension to take possession of them the more effectually to involve everything in confusion the king appointed not any one who should in his absence exercise any part of the administration he threw the great seal into the river and he recalled all those writs which had been issued for the election of the new parliament it is often supposed that the sole motive which impelled him to this sudden desertion was his reluctance to meet a free parliament and his resolution not to submit to those terms which his subjects would deem requisite for the security of their liberties and their religion but it must be considered that his subjects had first deserted him and entirely lost his confidence that he might reasonably be supposed to entertain fears for his liberty if not for his life and that the conditions would not probably be moderate which the nation sensible of his inflexible temper enraged with the violation of their laws and the danger of their religion and foreseeing his resentment on account of their past resistance would in his present circumstances exact from him by this temporary dissolution of government the populace were masters and there was no disorder which during their present ferment might not be dreaded from them they rose in a tumult and destroyed all the mass houses they even attacked and rifled the houses of the florentine envoy and spanish ambassador where many of the catholics had lodged their most valuable effects jefferies the chancellor who had disguised himself in order to fly the kingdom was discovered by them and so abused that he died a little after even the army which should have suppressed those tumults would it was apprehended serve rather to increase the general disorder feversham had no sooner heard of the king's flight than he disbanded the troops in the neighborhood and without either disarming or paying them let them loose to prey upon the country in this extremity the bishops and peers who were in town being the only remaining authority of the state for the privy council composed of the king's creatures was totally disregarded thought proper to assemble and to interpose for the preservation of the community they chose the marquis of halifax speaker 
they gave directions to the mayor and aldermen for keeping the peace of the city they issued orders which were readily obeyed to the fleet to the army and all the garrisons and they made applications to the prince of orange whose enterprise they highly applauded and whose success they joyfully congratulated the prince on his part was not wanting to the tide of success which flowed in upon him nor backward in assuming that authority which the present exigency had put into his hands besides the general popularity attending his cause a new incident made his approach to london still more grateful in the present trepidation of the people a rumor arose either from chance or design that the disbanded irish had taken arms and had commenced a universal massacre of the protestants this ridiculous belief was spread all over the kingdom in one day and begat everywhere the deepest consternation the alarm bells were rung the beacons fired men fancied that they saw at a distance the smoke of the burning cities and heard the groans of those who were slaughtered in their neighborhood it is surprising that the catholics did not all perish in the rage which naturally succeeds to such popular panics while every one from principle interest or animosity turned his back on the unhappy king who had abandoned his own cause the unwelcome news arrived that he had been seized by the populace at feversham as he was making his escape in disguise that he had been much abused till he was known but that the gentry had then interposed and protected him though they still refused to consent to his escape this intelligence threw all parties into confusion the prince sent zulstein with orders that the king should approach no nearer than rochester but the message came too late he was already arrived in london where the populace moved by compassion for his unhappy fate and actuated by their own levity had received him with shouts and acclamations during the king's abode at whitehall little attention was paid to him by the nobility or any persons of distinction they had all of them been previously disgusted on account of his blind partiality to the catholics and they knew that they were now become criminal in his eyes by their late public applications to the prince of orange he himself showed not any symptom of spirit nor discovered any intention of resuming the reins of government which he had once thrown aside his authority was now plainly expired and as he had exercised his power while possessed of it with very precipitate and haughty counsels he relinquished it by a despair equally precipitate and pusillanimous nothing remained for the now ruling powers but to deliberate how they should dispose of his person besides that the prince may justly be supposed to have possessed more generosity than to think of offering violence to an unhappy monarch so nearly related to him he knew that nothing would so effectually promote his own views as the king's retiring into france a country at all times obnoxious to the english it was determined therefore to push him into that measure which of himself he seemed sufficiently inclined to embrace the king having sent lord feversham on a civil message to the prince desiring a conference for an accommodation in order to the public settlement that nobleman was put in arrest under pretence of his coming without a passport 
the Dutch guards were ordered to take possession of Whitehall, where James then resided, and to displace the English, and Halifax, Shrewsbury, and Dalamere brought a message from the prince, which they delivered to the king in bed after midnight, ordering him to leave his palace next morning, and to depart for Ham, a seat of the Duchess of Lauderdale's. He desired permission, which was easily granted, of retiring to Rochester, a town near the seacoast. It was perceived that the artifice had taken effect, and that the king, terrified with this harsh treatment, had renewed his former resolution of leaving the kingdom. He lingered, however, some days at Rochester, under the protection of a Dutch guard, and seemed desirous of an invitation still to keep possession of the throne. He was undoubtedly sensible that, as he had at first trusted too much to his people's loyalty and in confidence of their submission, had offered the greatest violence to their principles and prejudices, so had he at last, on finding his disappointment, gone too far in the other extreme, and had hastily supposed them destitute of all sense of duty or allegiance. But observing that the church, the nobility, the city, the country, all concurred in neglecting him and leaving him to his own counsels, he submitted to his melancholy fate, and being urged by earnest letters from the queen, he privately embarked on board a frigate which waited for him, and he arrived safely at Ambletus in Picardy, whence he hastened to St. Germain's. Lewis received him with the highest generosity, sympathy, and regard, a conduct which, more than his most signal victories, contributes to the honor of that great monarch. Thus ended the reign of a prince, whom, if we consider his personal character rather than his public conduct, we may safely pronounce more unfortunate than criminal. He had many of those qualities which form a good citizen, even some of those which, had they not been swallowed up in bigotry and arbitrary principles, served to compose a good sovereign. In domestic life his conduct was irreproachable, and is entitled to our approbation. Severe, but open in his enmities, steady in his counsels, diligent in his schemes, brave in his enterprises, faithful, sincere, and honorable in his dealings with all men, such was the character with which the duke of york mounted the throne of england in that high station his frugality of public money was remarkable his industry exemplary his application to naval affairs successful his encouragement of trade judicious his jealousy of national honor laudable what then was wanting to make him an excellent sovereign a due regard and affection to the religion and constitution of his country. Had he been possessed of this essential quality, even his middling talents, aided by so many virtues, would have rendered his reign honorable and happy. When it was wanting, every excellency which he possessed became dangerous and pernicious to his kingdoms. The sincerity of this prince, a virtue on which he highly valued himself, has been much questioned in those reiterated promises which he had made of preserving the liberties and religion of the nation. It must be confessed that his reign was almost one continued invasion of both. Yet it is known that, 
to his last breath, he persisted in asserting that he never meant to subvert the laws, or procure more than a toleration and an equality of privileges to his Catholic subjects. This question can only affect the personal character of the king, not our judgment of his public conduct. Though by a stretch of candor we should admit of his sincerity in these professions, the people were equally justifiable in their resistance of him. So lofty was the idea which he had entertained of his legal authority, that it left his subjects little or no right to liberty, but what was dependent on his sovereign will and pleasure. And such was his zeal for proselytism, that, whatever he might at first have intended, he plainly stopped not at toleration and equality. He confined all power, encouragement, and favor to the Catholics. Converts from interest would soon have multiplied upon him. If not the greater, at least the better part of the people, he would have flattered himself, was brought over to his religion, and he would in a little time have thought it just, as well as pious, to bestow on them all the public establishments. Rigors and persecutions against heretics would speedily have followed, and thus liberty and the Protestant religion would in the issue have been totally subverted, though we should not suppose that James, in the commencement of his reign, had formally fixed a plan for that purpose. And on the whole, allowing this king to have possessed good qualities and good intentions, his conduct serves only, on that very account, as a stronger proof how dangerous it is to allow any prince, infected with the Catholic superstition, to wear the crown of these kingdoms. After this manner, the courage and abilities of the Prince of Orange, seconded by surprising fortune, had effected the deliverance of this island, and with very little effusion of blood, for only one officer of the Dutch army and a few private soldiers fell in an accidental skirmish, had dethroned a great prince supported by a formidable fleet and a numerous army. Still the more difficult task remained, and what perhaps the prince regarded as not the least important, the obtaining for himself that crown which had fallen from the head of his father-in-law. Some lawyers, entangled in the subtleties and forms of their profession, could think of no expedient but that the prince should claim the crown by right of conquest, should immediately assume the title of sovereign, and should call a parliament which, being thus legally summoned by a king in possession, could ratify whatever had been transacted before they assembled. But this measure, being destructive of the principles of liberty, the only principles on which his future throne could be established, was prudently rejected by the prince, who, finding himself possessed of the good will of the nation, resolved to leave them entirely to their own guidance and direction. The peers and bishops, to the number of near ninety, made an address desiring him to summon a convention by circular letters, to assume, in the meantime, the management of public affairs, and to concert measures for the security of Ireland. At the same time, they refused reading a letter which the king had left, in order to apologize for his late desertion by the violence which had been put upon him. This step was a sufficient indication of their intentions with regard 
to that unhappy monarch. End of section 44, chapter 71, part 3. Recording by Jim Dennison, J-I-M-D-E-N-I-S-O-N, voice.com.